0: A teaching pastor here at Trace. I'm a part of the teaching team. Really excited to get to chat with you today. Just a couple of quick things. First, on our app, if you don't have it, would really love for you to download it. There is a button you can press to add a prayer request to our new prayer wall. That rolled out about three weeks ago. Previously, we had prayer stations at the back and you gave us a prayer card. Now we uh, ask you to submit prayer requests through the app. The content from today is going to be heavy. And so if you need uh, someone to pray for you, we want to do that for you as a church. Given the nature of the content today, I wanted to remind you, I didn't say this in first service, I wish I would have. We have counselors at Trace who have uh, private practices. And so if anything we discussed today, brings something up and it would be helpful to talk to somebody, please call our church. And we have a Celebrate Recovery ministry. If you got a hurt habit or hang up, which is everybody, Uh, We have people in CR who would love to walk alongside you as as you're kind of battling through any of that stuff. So um, I'm going to be talking about forgiveness. And to start, I want to read you a story. On Wednesday, May 11th, 2002, the temperature in Pensacola, Florida dropped to a cool overnight low of 70 degrees. Peak tourist season was just around the corner and the city, as usual, would be ready for the influx of people who would come uh, seek out fun and sun on its sandy beaches. Early that morning at around 2.30 a.m., traffic would have been light as Megan Napier and her friend, Lisa Dixon, began driving home, having just finished up their babysitting shift not long before. That same night, Eric Smallridge was hanging, hanging out at a bar with some friends. At 24 years old, he was in the absolute prime of his life. As the bar closed, Eric decided he was sober enough to drive, grabbed his keys, and headed out into the cool night air of Pensacola. When he got in his truck and turned his key to his frustration, he realized his truck wouldn't start. Eric called a good friend, Mike, to jumpstart his vehicle so that he could make his way home. As Eric was leaving, he would recall later Mike, his friend, asking him, Eric, are you sure you're okay to drive tonight? At about 2.30 a.m. Derek told Mike he was fine and left. Minutes later, Eric's truck collided with Megan and Lisa's car on Highway 98 near Pensacola Bay Bridge. And tragically, excruciatingly, what word do you use to describe? I don't know. Both girls passed away on impact. Man, life, this side of heaven, sometimes hurts so bad it is hard to keep going. And psychologists have grouped the type of painful experiences people uh, endure in life into three categories. I wanted to share this with you to start. Uh, So this is a graph that kind of shows you the impact of different types of painful experiences in life. Uh, The story I just described is shock trauma. It's, it's, It's big, it's significant, it's overwhelming, it's obvious. A lady named Francine Shapiro who developed a counseling method to treat trauma calls shock trauma, capital T, big T trauma. And that's things like assault or violence or natural disaster or some kind of catastrophic event. But there's another type of trauma uh, psychologists identify by the the name strain trauma. And so strain trauma is like the death by a thousand cuts variety of, of pain. And what's interesting in the research, and you can see it on the graph, is that overwhelmingly the variety of trauma that influences people most detrimentally is strain trauma. In some cases, people have both. And the third category is combined trauma or complex trauma. And that's a combination of each, each type of trauma. And I'm a counselor by trade. And so day after day, I walk with people through this kind of season of life. And this type of pain, when pain reaches a certain level, people start asking really hard questions. People will ask me, Trent, Why did this happen? Trent, how do I move on after something like this? Trent, how can I heal the pain that I feel after what I've been through? And Trace, if I had a really easy answer for any of those, you guys would be the first to know. They're tough questions to answer. And in the New Testament, Jesus is asked a question that I would imagine lots of us have also asked ourselves in the midst of a painful season of life. And the question that Jesus is asked that I'm gonna talk about today is so important that Jesus answers the question with a parable. And a parable is a story. And Jesus used parables to teach understandable, unforgettable lessons about life, this side of heaven. And in Matthew 18, this question gets asked uh, by one of Jesus's inner circle of followers, one of his closest and best friends, a guy named Peter. And Peter says this to Jesus, uh, Peter comes to Jesus and asks Matthew 18, 21, Lord, how many times Shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Team, we can leave that up there uh, for just a second. This is a really great question Peter asks. And it's a personal question. Peter is asking Jesus, Lord, Lord, how many times should I forgive somebody who keeps hurting me? And Trace, this is an unavoidable part of life, this side of heaven. You are gonna find yourself in relationships with people sometime who are going to hurt you repeatedly. And that's such a common experience and it's so painful, we have kind of tried to imagine ways of avoiding that type of a situation. And I am gonna chase a rabbit trail. This is a long lesson, so please just bear with me. Uh, One of the ways we've tried to avoid this situation is by coming up with books and tactics and strategies and pop psychology. One of the books its a book I like the least in life. I really don't like the book at all. Is the book Boundaries by Cloud and Townsend. I'm sure Cloud and Townsend are awesome guys, right? And I've read the book six or eight times. And I don't not like the book because of the principle it teaches. I dislike the book because I think it misses the sequence uh, by which we're supposed to approach a scenario like this. Before we put boundaries on somebody else, we should put boundaries on our own self. Self Self-mastery, first step in the sequence before other mastery, so to speak. I, don't get me on a soapbox, snag me after church, I'll explain more about that. The reality is this is gonna happen and it's common. And when Peter asks this question, I would guess he's imagining a scenario like you probably are uh, when you read this or like you've experienced. I think he's reasoning through, Jesus, if, if somebody really hurts me repeatedly and I just keep on forgiving them, isn't it possible for me to be used or like exploited in some really unhealthy way? And so I think he's asking because Peter wants to know how he should allow others to treat him being treated right prompts this question. I think the second thing that prompts this question in in rabbinic teaching, old teaching uh, uh, from Peter's day in Judaism said you were supposed to forgive somebody who sinned against you between three and seven times. And so Peter's asking on the far end, like Jesus, if I were really to like take what we've been taught to its limit, should I forgive somebody who sins against me seven times? So he wants to do things the right way. He wants to be treated right, and he wants to do things the right way. And Jesus answers him very directly, and he says, not seven, Peter, 77 times. So there is some significance in the math there. Uh, In Jewish culture, numbers were also uh, symbols for things in life and not just numerical values. So in Genesis, when God creates the world, he does it in six days, it's completed day seven, and on day seven, he rests. Uh, Jesus, when he is on the cross, uh, makes seven statements, and after the seventh statement, his mission is completed, he passes. And seven is the number of completion in the Bible. So when we see the number seven, that's what we interpret it to mean. Jesus' audience, Peter would have known that immediately. And when Jesus is saying like 77 times, 490 times, he's not saying, now you gotta keep a tally sheet here, Peter. And after 489 times, you gotta tell somebody they only got one more chance. What Jesus is saying is you have to completely and totally and incessantly forgive. Forgive. And this is such a critical point for Jesus to make. He clarifies exactly what he is talking about by telling the story that we're gonna read today, the parable of the unmerciful servant. So the text in Matthew 18 picks up right there. And Jesus says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient, he begged. And and AV team, leave this text on the screen for just a minute. And I will pay back everything. Jesus is actually uh, kind of using some language to almost make a joke here. So this would have originally been written in ancient Greek language. And the highest numerical value word in the Greek language was 10,000. That's the biggest number you could say in a word in Greek. So that's like the highest number they can say. And bags of gold, the Greek word that is used to describe that is the most valuable denominator of, of money in ancient Greek culture. And so what do you get when you add the greatest number possible with the greatest value possible? If we were to translate that in today's language, and this is the joke Jesus is making, would be like zillions and zillions of dollars. And if you actually calculate it out, it would be like 200,000 years of wages, So it's an impossible task, right? The king looks in his loan pipeline. He sees a really egregious offender who owes him like way more than could ever be paid in life. And the king's like, I need to talk to this guy. And the guy comes in and it's impossible. The debt owed is too great to even uh, pay off a chunk. And despite it being an impossible task, this servant makes an impossible ask he drops to his knees before the king and he begs. I I don't know what Jesus's audience would have expected here, but they had to be like laughing. Like, I can't wait to see what this master, this king in this story does. And here's what Jesus says. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, the servant who had been forgiven much went off and had the other servant thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When other servants saw what happened, they were outraged and they went and told the master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant who had been forgiven much in you wicked servant. He said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had on you in his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And this is Jesus's point. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. If we didn't know how the story ended from the moment I stopped initially when the servant who ends up being forgiven much drops to his knees before the king, and then we read just what the king did, we would have thought, man, the heart of this king, how filled with compassion, how filled with kindness, how filled with grace. And then when we read that he forgave and, and the servant gets up and leaves, and I ask you, what life do you think that servant who had been forgiven much ends up living? What kind of a lifestyle? You probably set to say things like, Trent, I bet that guy was the nicest guy around. Everybody in the neighborhood loved him, full of grace, full of generosity, completely patient, gracious, easygoing, forgiving. That that servant who had been forgiven much finds another servant who owes him about three or four months wages, which if you do the math, it's one 600,000th of the debt the king forgave. And that servant couldn't forgive another servant who owed that little Debt compared to his, that was outrageous. But then Jesus drives home his point this is how my Father in heaven will forgive you as you forgive your brothers and sisters who sin against you. Trace Church, the topic and idea of forgiveness is central to Jesus's mission and central to the gospel message. In Matthew's story about Jesus, it runs all throughout the text. Matthew chapter one, verse 21, an angel comes to Joseph, Jesus' dad, and says, hey, the child you're gonna have, he is coming to forgive his people of their sins. That's a, minute, that's a uh, mission. After Jesus' uh, First sermon starts, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter six, he prays the Lord's prayer. And in verse 14 and 15, Jesus makes this exact same statement. As you forgive others, so your father in heaven will forgive you. Matthew 18, same statement, verse 35. Matthew 26, 28. Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant, which I am pouring out for many for the forgiveness of sins. A a forgiving God cannot forgive unforgiving people is, is the topic and message and point Jesus is making. And that is heavy, that's heavy. But the reality is, Trace, a forgiven community has to be, has to be a forgiving community. And in my work with, with people, I, 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 I'm not telling you anything I think you don't already know. And in my work with people, I work with lots of couples. Most of the work I do with couples is to help them uh, walk through the aftermath of infidelity. That's kind of my like singular focus in my counseling uh, practice. And couples who have been hurt, that's like shock trauma. Couples who have been hurt by infidelity will come in and they'll make a statement like this. Trent, I, I want to forgive. I know I need to forgive. I can't do it. I cannot get over it. And sometimes that's because they got this sort of moment in the past that hurts so bad, they're having trouble processing through it. But there are other other things that hurt couples more, strain trauma kinds of stuff. And I want to show you this. So I'm going to I'm gonna give you an example in one domain, how pain can accumulate and what the effect of that pain ends up being in this context on a marriage. And so the honeymoon phase in a relationship looks like this. This chart is what the honeymoon phase looks like. I know you thought it would be sexier looking than that, but that's it, that's just real talk. So when a relationship starts, when I met my wife, I thought her, I thought her positive qualities, were who she was internally, like her deepest self. So when she treated me lovingly, I'm like, well, of course she treats me lovingly, right? She is a wonderful, awesome person at the core of her being. That's internally who she is. As a result, her wonderful treatment of me is intentional. It's part of her pattern. Of course, she treats me great. She's great, that's why she does that. And it's altruistic. She does the right thing because it's the right thing to do, not because of what benefit it affords her because she's a good person. And I view her negative qualities as external. She was grouchy with me because traffic on the way back from work was bad. Or uh, she uh, was dismissive of me in the morning because she didn't sleep well. Not something within her prompting that negative behavior, something outside of her. And I view that negativity as accidental. She doesn't mean to do it. That's not who she is. So this leads to, so this right here is called positive sentiment override when you're in the honeymoon phase, meaning you feel so positively towards your spouse that the overriding emotion in your relationship is positive. Okay, that's a technical word that I'm gonna give you another technical word because I can't resist that leads to positive attribution error. So often in relationships, somebody does something and you don't know whether they meant it for good or meant it to hurt. And you have to interpret that statement or that deed in a way. And if you're in your honeymoon phase and somebody does something that like could go either way, you interpret that thing to their and your relational advantage, that's positive attribution error. I might be making an error but I'm making an error to our benefit. I could have just said, this is what the benefit of the doubt looks like in relationships, or this is like innocent until proven guilty. That's how we refer to this in our like everyday language. But people are flawed. And over time, people make mistakes. And the more you love somebody, the more their mistakes hurt. And eventually the mistakes cause enough pain that the strain pain causes the shift and how we view the other person in the relationship. And so here's, here's what happens. I'm gonna have our AV team go back and forth. So watch the positive and negative traits flip. So from honeymoon phase to strain, pain, shift, positive and negative switch places. So traits, let's go back to that previous slide. Positive and negative traits, honeymoon phase, at some threshold of pain, I go to strain, pain, shift, and this is what it looks like. So now I view my significant others negative qualities as though that's who they are internally. You treat me bad and make these mistakes because you're really this bad person. How could I have ever let you convince me otherwise? I could, I could have been so silly. And I view your negative stuff as intentional. You're doing it to hurt me. You wanna hurt me because you're a bad person. Now I view your positive stuff as external. The reason you were kind is because you hit every traffic light on the way back home. All lights were green. It was the best trip home of your entire life. So you were a little endearing when you got home. Or uh, I, view your positive, I view your positive stuff as accidental. You didn't really mean to tell me you love me. You were actually saying that to the kids, but I happened to walk across the hallway and I accidentally inter- intercepted that, but I know you didn't mean it. Or I view your positive stuff as attached with an ultimatum. Why are you? being nice. What string is attached here? So this is strain trauma, what I just described, and here's what's tough about that. Um, Couples will come to me and they'll say, we don't know why we're so uh, conflicted. There's no affair. Nobody's an addict. Nobody's acting crazy. And, and strain trauma based on the research is, is the more profoundly influential, in part because it's so much more difficult to see. And when couples get to this point in relationships, and this is, this is possible in any, in any domain of life, the research says it's hard, in some cases impossible to come back from. If couples come back from this, the way they do it is forgiveness. How do you heal pain from any variety of trauma? This is hard for me to say, because I know how bad it hurts. Forgiveness. And I wanna teach you a little bit about that. So I want to dispel some myths about forgiveness first. And then I want to do a little bit of a a deep dive into what the Bible means when the Bible describes forgiveness. I'm going to share six steps on a forgiveness process that I think are really helpful. Five myths. Here you go. Myth number one is that forgiveness is about reconciliation. The truth is forgiveness can be about reconciliation. It's not always about reconciliation. If someone has been assaulted or an act of violence has occurred, or a crime's been committed, reconciliation is likely not healthy in that context. Perhaps a person needs to forgive another person who's passed away. That would make reconciliation impossible. The truth about forgiveness is that you can forgive without the relationship being reconciled, and that's not an indicator of whether or not forgiveness has occurred. Like I said, sometimes a forgiveness process renews and restores and reconciles a relationship, and that is the context of Matthew 18 specifically. Jesus says, "How do I?" Uh, Peter says, "How do I how many times should I forgive a brother or sister who sins against me?" That's language of family, and Jesus says, "So you should forgive your brother or sister." In Matthew 18:35. So, the implication in that specific context is reconciliation. But it's not always Forgiveness does not always demand or involve a process of healing in relationships. That's important because if you're carrying something heavy today, I don't want you to leave Trace church thinking, I gotta go you know, reconcile with somebody who has deeply, deeply harmed me. That's not the case. So the Bible's gonna teach us what to do in that context, but we need to get that clear first. Second myth about forgiveness is that it immediately or, or, or ever relieves pain. I wish I could forget forever the memories of the deepest hurts I've endured in life. And I would love to not have the accompanying emotions that are attached to those memories ever come back up for me. But that's not the way human beings operate, Trace. Our body keeps the score, so to speak. Often when I teach this concept, I uh, use an illustration of a limb being amputated Your body, even if a limb has been amputated from time to time, still has sensations as though the limb is attached. That's called phantom limb pain and your pain, the painful experiences you've lived through have the same effect. So even if you have forgiven, it is possible that for the rest of your life, the thing you have forgiven still hurts and that can come and go maybe sometimes it hurts deeply maybe sometimes it doesn't hurt at all but whether or not you feel pain has nothing to do with whether or not you've forgiven third myth that it's a singular event that it happens once and only once and that's it forgiveness is a process it's crockpot not microwave it's marathon not sprint the Bible is gonna clarify that in a minute, but we've got to get this out of the way first. If you tried to forgive and then, and then the thing you felt like you had forgiven comes up later, if it comes up again, it doesn't mean you haven't forgiven. It means something, but not necessarily that you haven't forgiven. Okay, myth number four, that forgiveness goes hand in hand with forgetting. Like I said, once you forgive as a human being, doesn't mean it's erased from the sands of time or the, blotted out of the history books. Last myth about uh, forgiving is that it resolves justice. Galatians chapter six, verses seven through nine says, God has an economy that he has established here on planet earth. What you sow, you reap, can't escape it. And if someone commits a sin that's a crime or that hurts, there are natural consequences based on God's design of planet earth that need to be carried out. And forgiveness does not interfere with the process of justice. The process of justice can bear itself out even when forgiveness has taken place. And that's really important. So often I talk with people that are wrestling with this tension. If I forgive, does that mean um, justice doesn't get served? Absolutely not. Okay, so let's talk about what the Bible says about forgiveness. I, I got carried away with this lesson. There's so much content but this is the best way I think I can teach it in the time we've got today. There are three words I wanna wanna talk about. And the first word is a word we've already read in Matthew 18. And every time in Matthew's gospel, the word forgiveness is used. It's this same word. The The New Testament of the Bible was written in Koine Greek. And this word, afeimi, is the word used to describe forgiveness. So listen to what this actually means to send away, to release, to suffer like patiently endure pain or to permit. You don't hear forgetting there. You don't, you don't hear um, reconciliation there necessarily. You don't hear uh, interference with the process of justice in there. And so that's really important. The other two words used in the Bible to describe forgiveness are found in the Old Testament. And we want to interpret the Bible with the Bible so when we're trying to figure out what that word for forgiveness means in the New Testament in Greek, we are well-suited uh, uh, or well-served to figuring that out by looking at words that are used to describe forgiveness. In the Old Testament, there are two. The first one is salach. I've been waiting a week. I've been waiting a week to say that. Salach. Um, salach is the, the only time salach is used is if it describes God doing the forgiving, So this never refers to man doing the forgiving. And this is the forgiven, forgotten, forever erased, doesn't exist. The relationship progresses like it never even happened, which is wonderful as we are understanding God's forgiveness. Like when we ask for God's forgiveness, no matter the sin, it's forgiven and forgotten forever and your relationship with God is as though it never happened. Uh, Isaiah 55 talks about, uh, verse seven talks about complete and total pardon or forgiveness. That's the idea, okay? Nasa looks like NASA, but it's not gonna get us to outer space. It will get us to an accurate understanding of forgiveness. This is the word used when a human being is doing the forgiving. Sometimes it's used in reference to God but primarily when humans are forgiving one another. It means to lift up or to take. Now this is super interesting. Genesis chapter seven, verse 17. This word is used and here's the context. It's rain 40 days, it's rain, it's gonna rain 40 days and 40 nights. Noah has built his ark, the animals are on the ark. Noah is on the ark. And as the flood waters rise, the water lifts up the ark from the earth. The action of the water onto the ark, the lifting up of that burden is Nassah. Genesis 50, 17, when Joseph's brothers uh, go to him, he had betrayed them and they say, Joseph, you're supposed to forgive us. Our dad wants you to, we really want you to. Will you please forgive us? Every time they ask for forgiveness, they use the word Nassah. So what the Bible teaches us that forgiveness actually means, like real, true forgiveness, there are three things I want to say. The first is forgiveness doesn't mean, forgiving for real doesn't mean letting anything go. It it means commitment to carrying a burden for life. So when we talk about the idea of release or sending or um, suffering painfully enduring, what, what we're talking about is just a release of this tension that maybe this will just one day stop, cease to exist. I release sort of that thought and I accept and commit to bearing up this burden of pain for the rest of my life. So if someone harms Trent and I want to forgive this is what that means that I'm willing to make the commitment every single day to shoulder the burden of the pain that person caused. That's what the Bible is describing. And you could look at this one of two ways, right? Like when you're hurt, there's no easy way to erase that pain if you have to carry that burden. Imagine we're ancient Israelites and there is a well that one of us has to go to every single day to get water for for our family. So if I had to carry that obligatory burden every day, Nassah, the water from the well to my home, I could be really cynical and negative and pessimistic about it. I could say to myself, when it's cold and I have that water on my shoulder and it splashes and freezes my toes and hands, that's miserable. And my back hurts because I got to carry this load every day and my feet hurt and my knees hurt. My knees really do hurt. And this makes my life miserable. That's one way to do it. But another way to look at that would be to say, I am the only one in my family who gets to know what water fresh from the well tastes like. It's cooler. It's more crisp. It's so refreshing. I am the only one from my family who has been able to build the friendships that I have because of all the people I meet along the way carrying the burden of this water to and from the well to my home. Nobody gets to see as much countryside as I do. Nobody's in as good a shape of me for carrying this heavy burden all the time. And so that's, that's that meaning of that commitment. I, I, I choose it and accept it, and I view that as, as I just described, as something positive, as an act of obedience to God. Second thing that forgiveness means, if we accurately interpret it biblically, is releasing a debt. So every time in the New Testament forgiveness is described, it's described in the context of a monetary debt owed to someone. What that means, Trace, is when someone hurts you, they owe. They do. And you have a right to settle the score. Forgiveness in the Bible means you give that debt to God and you say, God, you settle the score. i want to tell you this. Sometimes I hear stories in my practice, I'll have our AV team edit this out, where it is almost all I can do not to find the person who hurt the client sitting in my office and want to get even. And I think as a a counselor or a person who works with people like pastors, that's a real thing that sometimes people struggle with. I wanna settle scores or right wrongs or balance the scales of justice. And some nights, the way I rest my head on the pillow is knowing that God is the perfect harbinger of justice. Vengeance belongs to him and he will repay. So the wrath of God is something that could be comforting in that context. And my encouragement, if you're really struggling right now, or someone's really hurt you, find comfort in knowing that God settles scores and writes wrongs and balances the scales of justice. Yep, there's forgiveness, but God is also just. And there's comfort in that. And I want the perfect harbinger of justice delivering it, not me. And I want you to want the same thing, Uh, Third thing the scriptures teach, all of the words that uh, describe forgiveness in the Bible are are process words, not event words. And that's what uh, forgiveness is. Forgiveness is a step along the healing journey, not the only one or the first or last. It's a step and God demands it. Forgiveness is required every time it's used in the context of, that Jesus uses it in Matthew 18 like that. It's a, it's a demand. We have to forgive. And hopefully understanding forgiveness better helps you think through what that demand God places on each of us to forgive is really all about. I told you I got six uh, steps to a forgiveness process. I'm gonna give them to you. I promise it's gonna be fast and I'm gonna wrap up. So uh, in my family, we ab- operate by the principle, he who eats last eats most. So second service, you're always going to get a little bit more uh, from me as a result. How, how, do you, how do you forgive? Ah, you guys. All right, here we go. We got to go. You start that clap and I'm going to go twice as long. How do you forgive? Step one, attune to your pain. Unacknowledged pain is virtually impossible to move past. So most people try to relieve pain by pretending that it doesn't exist. People come talk to me and they'll say, "Trent, I just can't move past this pain. Maybe I'm forgiven." I'm like, I, I, I. "You got to feel that to heal that." And so that's that's tough because you got to face what you're running from. So a forgiveness process, in my experience, needs to involve attunement first, acknowledgement. If you're married and we gotta heal pain in the context of your marriage, your spouse has to attune and connect to the pain that they've caused. And that's a long process sometimes, it's important. Step two is is connection. And it's connecting words to feelings. When you experience trauma, there's an area of your brain called Broca's area that goes offline, among other areas. It literally shuts down. So if, if I ask someone to describe their pain, the way trauma affects the brain, you can't find the words. And so that, that's hard to do. I'm not, I, you, you guys are like, I, when I've learned this kind of thing at first, I'm like, that's so uh, simple, it's, a, it, it's absurd. How could that work? When you take your time to describe it and put words to it, your brain kind of heals itself. It's a really interesting process. And that's what James 5:16 talks about. We confess one to another so that we can be healed. Now the neuroscience uh, has caught up with the truths of the scriptures. So talking that out, and that could be in the form of a prayer between you and God, a long season of praying you and God and journaling you and God, maybe finding a trusted other, maybe talking with that with your spouse about that. Third thing, shift your perspective. So Jesus' teaching on the parable of the unmerciful servant is done in part to, to bring to mind how much God has forgiven the people who are listening to him. And because we have all been forgiven so much, we should forgive much. And so that shift in perspective from pain to God's forgiveness of me is an important shift. That's the first part. The second part is a shift from a past focus to a present focus. How do you know you're living in the past? Uh, Resentment or regret. That means you're living in the past. How do you know you're living in the future? Fear, worry, or anxiety. Both those domains belong to God. So let him have them, let's live right now today. So a present focus and and a shift to focusing on your forgiveness, not necessarily your pain. Third thing, now we're making the commitment to carry the burden. In my experience, people have to make that commitment every single day, often multiple, multiple times a day. I'm committed to shouldering this burden. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 11, 28 through 30, Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my burden upon you and learn from me for I'm meek and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. So what does that mean? What that means is that over time, as we are forgiving, because that is the will of God for us, he strengthens our our steps. And the burden does get lighter over time. But you have to commit to carrying it for that process to work. Uh, fifth step, surrender the debt. We've talked about that already. Every time the thing comes up and you want to settle the score or uh, say the words left unsaid, remind yourself God's taking care of this. I don't have to. Redirect your thinking, change topic of discussion, do an active activity, whatever you have to do to stop yourself from trying to get vengeance and, and giving God permission to do that on your behalf. Sixth step, and I'm done. Help someone else. One of the best things you can do in life when your burden feels heavy is share someone's burden with them. And that's deeply embedded into our design. Our DNA at the cellular level benefits from that kind of connection. And it really is healing. I can't go into all the research today. I told my wife this morning, I'm like, this is gonna be so long and I only am gonna say a fraction of what I wanna say About helping someone else, I wanna go back to the story I said, uh, I was was sharing at the start of this talk. And here's where that story picks up. Renee Napier, Megan Napier's mom answered the door early in the morning on May 12th, 2002. Renee's sister-in-law was barely able to get the words out. Renee, there's been an accident. It was Megan, she didn't make it. Renee recalls feeling like her heart had been ripped out, like everything inside of me had been obliterated. She said, I felt empty immediately. Eric Smallridge was found guilty on two counts of DUI manslaughter a few months later in 2003. He was given a 22 year long prison sentence for his crime. Rene recalls feeling like, quote, the system served us well and justice had been served. I felt that strongly. Surprisingly, a few years after his 22 year sentence began, a judge decided to release Smallridge at the request of a person, not because of what they said, but because of who they were. That person was Renee Napier. I I petitioned the courts for Eric's release because it was the right step for my healing. I could hate him forever and the world would tell me I have a right to do that. But it wasn't doing me any good and it wasn't doing him good either. I didn't wanna grow old and bitter and angry and hateful. Forgiveness had to happen because I had to heal. Since then, Renee Napier has not only forgiven her son's murderer, Eric Smallridge, but they traveled together around the United States speaking about the life-threatening dangers of drunk driving and the transformational healing found in forgiveness. By helping others Renee has unlinked herself from her painful past and linked herself to someone else's bright future. And in doing so, she has found significant healing. I'm going into our response time, Trace. If you're new here, what that means is I'm about to pray and then our praise team is gonna come up and we're gonna take communion together. And our communion is open. We want you to uh, take communion with us. And over the course of this series that we're calling Memento, we're giving you a memento at the end of service. So on your way out of the auditorium today, I want you to take the memento of a link, a chain link with you. And as you're doing your uh, response time now, I want you to think of three things, uh, linking yourself to the forgiveness God has given you. I want you to think about that link and I hope it just strikes you with such gratitude as you consider that, that you get overwhelmed. Second link is to, is to be willing to link yourself to someone else if God presents an opportunity. Help somebody else carry their burden. So the link symbolizes your connection to God and his forgiveness of you, your openness to connecting to others and your willingness to unlink from the past stuff that you know God is calling you to unlink yourself from. And I'm just asking that you would at least carry that link with you for the next 30 days. And when you see it, think of those three things, your connection to God is forgiveness of you, your willingness to connect to others, and your unlinking of yourself from your past. So thankful you're here today, Trace. It is such an honor to get to share today with you. Let's pray. God, thanks for... Uh, this church, their patience with this lesson, a lot of content to cover it, just felt really delicate to try to do this the way you called me to do it. And God, I just ask right now that the hearts of our church would be moved, that they would consider their linking of their spirit to yours through the forgiveness you've provided. And I ask they would be overwhelmed with just gratitude and love as they consider that. I ask that they would also be mindful of being open to linking up with another and helping a person carry the load of their pain. Uh, If you present that opportunity, God, I ask that you would also help our church be mindful of unlinking ourselves from the past stuff you're asking us to disconnect from, to unlink from. And God, may we all, through this whole process, honor and glorify your name and give you thanks for the love you've demonstrated to us through your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.